Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, for those few who have been diligent enough to come from the first day onwards, I'm going to sound like a broken record welcoming you uh, to <laughs> two corridors apart. Uh, just a housekeeping announcement. There are uh, catalogs on the side. If you haven't picked up one, feel free to pick up one or two or three. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and encourage others to come and see this. Um, the, the, the exhibition relies on social media and emails to get the word out. And I um, actually wrote to Warden uh, of St. Thomas's, uh, asking him to get the call forms. And uh, there are others who actually wanted uh, A-level students to come and see this. So we are trying to get the word out to schools as well. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Anjana Hattato. I'm a senior researcher at the Center for Policy Alternatives and the editor of Ground Views and the curator of this exhibition. A very brief insight of what you see here um, hasn't been done before insofar as it's the visualization of power as enshrined in the Constitution and subsequent amendments to it. So the buildings that you see, the physical manifestation, uh, the models that you see uh, are actually the power relations as enshrined in the 1972, uh, the 78, and the changes that, are, uh, that uh, affected those power relations in the 13th, uh, 18th, and 19th amendments. Uh, the original research was done by an old friend of mine, Asanga Valikala. And uh, all of what you see in this room uh, is the creation of Chanadas Fatta. Uh, we spent months talking about what you see in the room, so it's not an easy project. Uh, it took uh, long hours of deliberation uh, with Chan and his staff. Uh, two anecdotal points. Um, actually, uh, the, the rest of it you can see um, uh, in, the, in the catalog or go online and read more about it. Um, I also thought of doing a curated talk uh, going through the exhibition, so that's going to happen uh, over three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at 4 o'clock. So if you want to know more about the conception of the project um, and go through each of the sections with me, uh, feel free to come and join. Uh, just to encourage you to go right up to the diagrams, because every single pillar, every single corridor, every single window, every single door, passageway, roof, tree line has meaning. It is uh, responding to something in the Constitution. Two anecdotal stories. On the first day, there was um, an almost legally blind person, uh, severely vision impaired, who came uh, and uh, was helped around the exhibition. So obviously, the person couldn't see what was on the walls. But uh, with the help of uh, an individual who accompanied him, uh, very, very carefully, gently touched uh, the four models uh, over the course of that evening. Um, and I suppose blind people are more sensitive to what they touch and feel and are able to spatially reproduce what they, uh, uh, the tactile feedback that they get. And by the end, I was told, uh, he had understood that the structure there, which represents the 18th, was totally unsustainable. Uh, was, was, and this is a, a, almost a legally blind person. Um, the second uh, 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 thing that I wanted to point out, and I shouldn't be because you should really get it, but you might not understand the significance of it. There's a little printout there uh, next to the 18th Amendment. It's not part of the uh, uh, architectural drawings. That is an error message from Revit, uh, and a, a program that is used apparently by architects, I'm told, a bit like Autodesk, AutoCAD. Um, and what happens there is that when, when the um, architects at China's office 
were trying to model this uh, building, uh, which is the 18th Amendment, uh, the program itself had thrown up an error saying that it was unsustainable, that it was structurally, in engineering uh, principles, unsound. Uh, so I made the joke on opening night that if a computer is intelligent enough to realize that the 18th Amendment was unsound, then, uh, and a blind person as well. Um, last night, there was a 12-year-old uh, who had come with his mother, um, and I think because the mother couldn't leave him alone in, in the house, and not because of any interest of the 12-year-old to come and see corridors of power, but had you know, demonstrated an interest in the models. Um, so I, I walked with him and his mother, and we focused on the 13th and the 18th, um, and he, un he got it. Uh, he, uh, he understood it in, in the sense of, uh, he said it would be cool to actually have a computer game where you could walk through the passageways. So the, the, what seems to resonate is that the spatial uh, visualization or the, uh, the, the physical artifact of the power relations seem to have actually communicated much more than anything that, for example, CPA could have put out in terms of a 40-page report, uh, which is why I think it's quite powerful. Uh, it has appealed to almost a legally blind person, to a 12-year-old, and certainly also to a computer program, which tells we were a bit wonky to support this. Um, so thank you for coming. Uh, every day at 5.30, like today, there will be a keynote or a panel discussion. Uh, we've had it from day one, and it will continue till the 22nd. Uh, all of the um, submissions, presentations will be recorded and subsequently put up as a podcast uh, online. Uh, all of this material will also be subsequently put up online, but I think it does make a difference when you see the models, which is why I encourage people to come and see it while it is here. We hope to, we don't know, take this around Sri Lanka, uh, including the south, the north, and the east, obviously. And there has been some interest by people who have come to take it actually outside of Sri Lanka as well, suggesting that uh, it uh, certainly will resonate in other countries and contexts as well. So that's all in the future, but what, we, what I can assure you is that this will continue to the 22nd, so please encourage as many as you can to come and engage. Uh, today we have uh, Rohan Edrisinga and Ambika who are going to basically uh, talk to us about, uh, for those of you who have come on the opening night, we had Asanga Chan and I speaking, and yesterday we had Mr. Jayampati Vikramratna uh, speaking. Uh, the week will look at the culture of constitution making uh, and the culture, the framework, the architecture, no pun intended, of constitutionalism in this country. And it will shed light on it through multiple perspectives. Uh, yesterday we had Jayampati talking about uh, what could be or should be the government's vision with regards to a new and modern constitution. Uh, and today, uh, we will hear from Rohan uh, a bit more, but from a slightly different angle, as you uh, might have read in the, um, in the description of the talk that was posted online and also sent out through email. Uh, what I was very interested in is also a question that I asked about Sarah and Jayampati yesterday. The uh, process, the language, the whole culture and the framework and the discourse surrounding constitution-making uh, has been very legalistic and very exclusive. Uh, and the process side of it uh, hasn't been, uh, even though it was uh, uh, highlighted by Jayampati yesterday, 
uh, I think hasn't been given enough emphasis. The need for uh, public consultation, how you do it, uh, substance aside, and the hard negotiations around substance aside, how you actually encourage public participation and public dynamics and public input. Uh, and also, I mean, I don't know whether Rohan will talk to it, but given that we live in a social media age and you know people are airing their underwear literally on social media, why cannot be uh, those? Why can't those technologies be leveraged for the purpose of uh, uh, of consultation? Uh, uh, around a new constitutional culture and a new constitution. Uh, so those are some of the aspects that Rohan will touch on. Uh, and uh, Ambika will respond uh, also by looking at uh, substantively uh, how that grotesque structure um, came about and how uh, moving forward from the 19th Amendment, I think actually when you, when you, the arc of the exhibition terminates at the 19th, and it's very evident that it's not a sustainable structure to build anything more on. Uh, so if once the, 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 the hideous uh, superstructure of the 18th Amendment is stripped down uh, and you get to the bare necessities, uh, Ambika will, in a sense, uh, substantively speak to the conceptual need uh, to prevent that encroachment of authoritarianism uh, and the encroachment of the executive uh, in the future. Uh, however, they want to move forward into a new constitution. So I, uh, uh, I hope that uh, you will engage with the, with the keynotes and the, and the respondent, and after they finish, uh, as has always been the case, there will be space for questions and answers from the audience as well. Thanks again for coming, and with that, may I uh, introduce Rohan. I don't give, I mean, I, uh, obviously, I hope that you know and, uh, uh, who the speakers are, which is why you've come. Uh, if you don't know, um, it's just a click away. Uh, all of the, the speaker information uh, is linked to uh, the event page on Facebook, so, or just Google it, so I will not waste time with introducing the speakers, but I'm very grateful that they are here, and with that, Rohan, please, thanks. Thank you very much, Sanjana. Um, my friend Jagdish tried to help me understand the sort of basic theme of the exhibition, and he suggested to me that the basic theme was that the two constitutions were flawed and that the present constitution in particular is just not sustainable and that there's therefore a need for a new constitution. And so what I see my task as this evening is trying to explain in constitutional terms why the 1972 Constitution as well as the 1978 Constitution are, in my view, fundamentally flawed, and why, therefore, there is a need for an entirely new Third Republican Constitution. The second point that I'd like to emphasize is that what is important for the Third Republican Constitution is that we learn the mistakes of the past. And this is why, why I'm a little bit concerned that if we don't get the process right this time around, we're not going to learn from the mistakes of the past, and we will have a new constitution which is also as bizarrely designed, perhaps, as 
some of these architectural models indicate. So what were the two, the, the basic flaws, if you like, of the first two constitutions, the two so-called autochthonous constitutions or made in Sri Lanka constitutions, which in my view have contributed to the rise in authoritarianism in this country since 1972, not since 1978, the gradual undermining of democratic institutions and therefore the lack of public confidence in these institutions, the widespread violation of human rights that we have experienced in this country, and also the increased polarization that exists in this country between the different ethnic and religious groups. And the flaw in my view is with, with respect to the constitutional foundations. And I'm not sure whether these models demonstrate this point. To me, it's that foundation which is at the very bottom. Sri Lanka seems to have ignored constitutional fundamentals or constitutional first principles. And let me try as briefly as I can to explain what these foundational elements are. Someone put it well when he said that Sri Lanka has had constitutions without constitutionalism. In other words, documents which do not subscribe to the basic values or principles or even the objectives of what a constitution is meant to achieve. So basically, if you look at both the 72 and 78 constitutions, they are flawed because, one, they, are, they have both been partisan documents. Second, therefore, they have not been consensual documents which have, been, which have received the support and the respect of a cross-section of Sri Lanka politically and in terms of ethnic divide. Thirdly, the process by which these constitutions were drafted and adopted were flawed. And fourthly, obviously then from this the constitutional first principles were violated. Now, what are these first principles? I am extremely concerned that Sri Lanka's political leadership seems to forget that at the end of the day, a constitution is meant to protect the people from the politicians, to protect the people from the people who wield political power. That is essentially what a constitution is for. So if the people who wield power draft the constitution, it's like a total conflict of interest. I used to tell my students at the law faculty that asking politicians to draft uh, constitutions is like asking foxes to design hen coops. You can just imagine what the design will be. Friedrich Hayek, in his famous book, The Constitution of Liberty, said that representative democracy is not really about regular and periodic elections. 
He said that rather, representative democracy means a moment where the people come together as a constitution-making body and then decide how much power should be given to the, to the politicians, what the structure of governance should be, so that they are protected and so that they are empowered vis-a-vis -vis the politicians. So the Constitution, then, is meant to reflect, in other words, the supreme will of the people. The people, if you like, with a capital P. And that's what makes the Constitution the supreme law of the land. Now, if you look at both the 72 and 78, if you look at what the government is thinking about in terms of a new constitution, how much engagement will there be of the people? How much power will the people actually have to design a constitutional architecture that is in their interests rather than in the interests of the politicians? So this raises some very important questions about process, but I am stressing the fundamental first principle point that a constitution is meant to protect the people from the politicians. The second important first principle that Sri Lanka has ignored. The constitution, if it is to achieve the objectives of constitutionalism, must be supreme. It has to be a consensus document, but it has to be accepted by all the political actors, and in, it, in terms of its legal efficacy and impact, it has to be, in reality, the supreme law of the land. Now, if you look at the 72 and 78 constitutions, in their preambles, they both said that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, but in reality, both constitutions were not supreme. So what's the purpose of having a Constitution which is supposed to be the supreme law of the land if, in terms of its impact and its practical implications, it is not supreme? If you accept the principle that the Constitution is supreme, it means that every organ of government, the legislature, the executive, the judiciary, every institution set up by the Constitution is a creature of the Constitution. The Constitution, in a sense, is the creation document. But if you look, and you might say, well, that's obvious. It is certainly obvious in most constitutional democracies in the world and most constitutional democracies in South Asia. But it is not obvious in Sri Lanka. And let me give you a couple of examples. Take the executive. Let's take the 1978 constitution. Even before the hyper-presidential aspect of the 1978 constitution. The president 
is given blanket or was given blanket immunity, I would argue that he still has virtual blanket immunity so that the president, if he were to violate the Constitution or not implement or operationalize certain parts of the Constitution, there is nothing that anyone can do about it. So let's take the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Everyone is talking about it. There are huge chunks of the 13th Amendment that have not been operational since its introduction in 1987. And no one can go to court, no chief minister can, can challenge the non-implementation of those parts of the 13th Amendment. Why? Because of Article 35 of our Constitution that says that the president cannot be made a party to any legal proceedings. The effect of that then is to prevent the Constitution from really functioning, and what is worse, prevent any kind of public recourse to try and prevent that from continuing. But what is more alarming are three articles of the Constitution which are probably not found in any other Constitution in the democratic world. Article 16. This is a provision that follows the Bill of Rights, which is supposed to be a very important component of any constitution. There's a Bill of Rights which tells you that you have freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of religion, etc., etc. And then Article 16 says, however, all existing law written or unwritten, is valid, even though those laws may violate the Constitution. So a supreme law, which, in, which, which itself says that ordinary law, legislation and common law, which exists at the time the Constitution is introduced, remains valid notwithstanding inconsistency with the Constitution. Most constitutions in the democratic world, Nepal, India, Thailand, South Africa, the United States, whatever, have provisions which say exactly the opposite. But this article has been in the Constitution of 1972, 1978, and not one political party in this country is committed to doing away with this article. Another example. How do you protect the supremacy of the Constitution? International best practice is that if any citizen feels that he or she is touched or impacted by a law or a regulation that is inconsistent with the Constitution, you can challenge that law or that regulation and argue before the courts, this ordinary law violates the supreme law. And the judiciary in most countries has the power to review the law to see whether it is consistent or inconsistent with the Constitution. It's called constitutional review in Europe. It's called judicial review in the Commonwealth. 
And this is the mechanism by which you ensure that laws are consistent with the supreme law. Sri Lanka's constitution has a clause which expressly prohibits that exercise. There is no judicial review of legislation in Sri Lanka. Example number three, Article 84 of our constitution. There's actually a provision in our constitution that tells parliament how it can pass unconstitutional laws. It's set out in the constitution itself. Members of parliament, if you want to pass laws that violate the supreme law, this is how you do it. I have not come across any similar articles in any constitutional democracy around the world. And if any of you have, please let me know. I've been searching for more than 30 years. Now, in my view, provisions like that go against first principles of constitutionalism, undermine the very foundation of a constitutional architecture. And there's been no talk by either of the two main political parties, or any political party for that matter, about repeating any of these three constitutional provisions or not including them in the proposed new constitution. The third fundamental principle, I talked about the people drafting the constitution, the supremacy of the constitution, the third. Eugene Rostow, the dean of Harvard Law School, once famously described the constitution as a counter-majoritarian document. The whole purpose of having a constitution is to go against the normal democratic working principle of decision-making by majority vote. Why have a constitution? Why not just have elections? Why not elect representatives of the people? And why not let representatives of the people pass laws and govern us? That's the system that existed in the United Kingdom until relatively recently. The whole reason for having a constitution, putting a constitution into that mix, if you like, is because it was felt that the weakness in that system is that everything will be decided on the basis of majoritarian decision-making. And that that would be extremely unfortunate if you were a person who found himself or herself always in a minority, or frequently in a minority. There was a feeling, therefore, that while majoritarian decision-making was legitimate in certain areas, there were certain matters that had to be taken outside the purview of majoritarian decision-making. And that is why a constitution comes into the picture. You put certain things into the constitution and say, these things cannot be decided by majoritarian decision-making, other things can. So human rights, structures of governance, elections, the rationale then is to, of constitutionalism is to act as a counter-majoritarian document and constitutionalism is extremely sensitive about 
what John Stuart Mill called the tyranny of the majority. Now, I'm not sure that in Sri Lanka, our political leaders have really appreciated this point. Because very often, initiatives, laws, practices, even constitutional design is justified in the name of protecting the majority. If one were to put it provocatively, a constitution is really not interested in protecting the rights of the majority because majorities can look after themselves. A constitution is interested in looking after the individual, the minorities, and people who do not have access to power. So if you look at the first and second Republican constitutions, in my view, the basic flaws that they had relate to these three constitutional first principles. And I think the challenge for all of us, if we want the third Republican constitution to be a significant improvement on its two predecessors, is to ensure that these fundamentals are addressed. So a word about process. Jayanpati spoke to you last evening. What is the process that the new government is going to adopt to introduce a new constitution? How are we going to ensure that it's not the parliament of Sri Lanka that basically drafts the constitution, but the people of Sri Lanka? Now, obviously, there are practical limits on this. But at the very least, the process of constitution making has to be open and transparent so that the people know what's going on. The people have to be engaged and consulted as far as possible. And there has to be what a South African academic has called a culture of justification. Whenever parties and leaders and ministers of constitutional affairs or Jayampati himself if they were to come up with constitutional proposals, they've got to be able to say, this is what we propose for the following reasons, and be willing to engage in justification and engagement with the people. If you have a process like that, and this is why process is so important, as Sanjana said in his introduction, it will definitely have a bearing on substance. A good process results in good substance. And I think we learned this very vividly with the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. How many of us knew that the members of the Constitutional Council nominated from civil society will have to be approved by Parliament? Did we even discuss this? How many of us knew that there was going to be a provision prohibiting people with dual citizenship from contesting public office? Did the people discuss this? And how now we begin to realize how the 19th Amendment has redefined the concept of national government. I don't think the people were engaged in a discussion on what to call a government which consists of the largest political party and one other. And so we have all sorts of problems with our 19th Amendment, and that is because the process was absolutely non-transparent and actually, from the point of view of first principles, totally deficient. So process is important, and we have got to ensure that a good process is adopted.
I shall briefly, because of constraints of time, flag a couple of thoughts on substance. The debate on the executive. Should it be presidential? Should it be parliamentary? Should it be semi-presidential? We've had a semi-presidential model under the 78 Constitution with the president having enormous powers vis-a-vis -vis the prime minister. There too, I think the fundamental flaw seems to be the following. If you have any person in the executive who is elected directly by the people, by the people of the whole country, you're going to have, given Sri Lanka's political culture, an elected dictatorship. So my suggestion would be, whether you call it an elected president or an elected prime minister, don't have anyone who is elected by the whole country. Because if you are looking for power sharing in the executive, it becomes extremely difficult if one person's constituency is Sri Lanka and the next person's constituency is Dompe or Biagama or Dadigama. The person who is elected by the whole country will have an exaggerated sense of his, his or her own power and his or her own importance. The debate on electoral system design. The 20th Amendment alerted us to the dangers of electoral reform without careful thought. If the 20th Amendment was passed, our electoral system would probably have been worse than the one that we already have. Let's get our basics right. Why do we need to change our present electoral system? Because many people would like to. I have an identifiable member of parliament as his or her constituency MP. Alienation of the member of parliament from the voter. Reason number one. Reason number two, people want to do away with preferential voting. And we saw what happened at the last election. Everyone felt that preferential voting contributes to increased corruption, money politics, etc. I'd just like to say that preferential voting strengthens the power of the voter. Because if you and I didn't give our three preferences as to which individuals within each party should be elected, given Sri Lanka's lack of intra-party democracy, that decision would have been made by the party leader. So if we're doing away with it, let's try to have a system that compensates the citizen for the resulting lack of power as a result of doing away with preferential voting. And so the 20th Amendment was a horribly complicated amendment. There is a simple alternative, which since 1994, the two main political groupings in this country have pledged to introduce, and that is what is known as the mixed MMP system, where you have the best of both worlds. You have your first-past-the-post constituency MP. The parliament is comp composed ultimately on the basis of proportional representation. And it's a system that is practiced in Germany, in Scotland, and in New Zealand. So there is international best practice. And very importantly, given the fact that Sri Lanka's is probably has the lowest level of women's representation in the legislature in the region, apart possibly from the Maldives, 
This system allows for modifications to be made to the system to ensure inclusion. It is flexible enough to allow for inclusion, and in Sri Lanka, what we really need is inclusion of women in the legislature. And given the fact that it allows the voter to have two ballot papers, where the voter votes for the party of his or her choice, and then has a separate vote for the constituency MP or candidate of his or her choice, it gives the voter more choice. So the point I made earlier about compensating the voter for the loss of preference voting is fulfilled through what is known as the mixed member proportional system. A word about the Bill of Rights, because everyone is talking about the Bill of Rights and gaining GSP plus preference, uh, trade preferential agreements again. Let me just tell you, our Bill of Rights falls short of international norms and standards. And it is mandatory before the EU restores GSP privileges that they have to be able to demonstrate that the recipient country, that its Bill of Rights is compatible with, at the very least, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. If you look at the way our rights are enumerated, if you look at the limitation clause which allows the executive branch of government to impose restrictions on the rights that citizens of Sri Lanka and persons in Sri Lanka have. And if you look at the enforcement mechanism, and of course that article that I referred to earlier where all existing law is valid even though it violates the Bill of Rights, there is no way that you can demonstrate that Sri Lanka's Bill of Rights is compatible with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So for that reason alone, I'm not saying that that should be the only reason, Sri Lanka's Bill of Rights needs to be fundamentally redrafted and restructured. I'd like to talk about the difficult issue that this government is going to face when it comes to a new constitution. The Rajapaksa government really lost a tremendous opportunity, and it's a kind of criminal negligence when you look at it now, at not addressing the underlying causes of Sri Lanka's ethnic conflict after the defeat of the LTTE. That happened in 2009, it's now 2016. And one would have hoped that they would have been magnanimous in victory and reached out to the Tamil people by proposing reasonable, constitutional and political reform to address the underlying causes of the conflict. This was not done. And now, the TNA and the people of the North and the East at the last election voted overwhelmingly for the moderate political parties, rejected the Tamil hardline nationalists who were using the discourse of self-determination, nationhood, and homeland, and in a sense, this is probably the last chance that Sri Lanka has to really reach out to the Tamil community and come up with a reasonable compromise. You have the TNA leadership taking an extremely moderate line. And my fear is that notwithstanding the Tamil community adopting this reasonable and moderate stance, 
My fear is that the Sinhalese community will not be able to reciprocate in a reasonable manner. If you look at what the government has said in its manifesto, it has pledged to introduce in the new constitution maximum devolution within a unitary state. My problem with that formulation is that we have had this in Sri Lanka since 1987, and it has just not worked. You will recall that when the 13th Amendment was introduced, there were people who went to the Supreme Court of Sri Lanka and said, the new provincial council system, which is described in one of these models, gives power to the provinces to such an extent that it undermines the unitary character of the Constitution. Four judges agreed with that argument. Four of the most independent judges on the Supreme Court, because we now know how much political pressure was put on the Supreme Court with respect to this case. Four judges said, yes, the unitary parameters have been broken. Five judges said it had not. So it was a split decision, extremely close. And there are people who say that the, the maximum was reached, the, the, the frontiers were reached with respect to the devolution that we have witnessed in this country through the provincial council system since 1987. So the question is, if we already have maximum devolution within the unitary state, and if the TNA and all the Tamil political parties have rejected the 13th Amendment, how can we introduce more devolution of power without violating the unitary principle? And I know you're going to have a separate session on the so-called F word, but I just want to, because I'm not going to be here on that day, I just want to lend my support to Mr. Sumandaran and say we need to really start thinking seriously about what is so sacred about this concept of unitary. We need to look at its history. We have to look at what it means. And we also need to look at what the concept of federalism means and have a healthy debate on this. All I'm going to say is that federalism around the world is seen as one of the most successful weapons against secession. In Canada and in lots of countries, if you call yourself a federalist, the separatists hate you. In Sri Lanka, if you call yourself a federalist, federalist you're labeled a separatist. My last point of substance, the independence of the judiciary. We've had a major crisis in this country. There was a day on which we had three chief justices, right? Um, Judges, chief justices were impeached in extremely questionable ways. The whole question of not only appointment then of Supreme Court judges, but also disciplinary control and removal has got to be addressed. We've got to come up with a mechanism that is not a parliamentary committee, but probably is also not a committee of judges, because judges are probably never going to find any of their colleagues guilty. It's like medical malpractice. You'll never get a doctor testifying against another doctor. So we need to be a little creative and imaginative in the mechanism we come up with. But I'd like to also suggest that it's not only independence. 
we need a judiciary, especially the one that deals with the bigger constitutional questions, that has empathy with the values of the Constitution, and therefore we need a judiciary that is inclusive as well. And I, for one, certainly hope that Sri Lanka seriously considers the idea of a separate constitutional court where perhaps the court can consist of slightly different people to deal exclusively with constitutional matters. It has worked in South Africa, it's been talked about in Nepal, and it's a mechanism that ensures that the judiciary has people of different backgrounds and therefore more empathy for constitutional values. So let me sum up. Maybe I owe Sanjana a kind of an apology because what I've tried to suggest to you is that it's not the architecture, it's not the superstructure, it's the foundation. And if you haven't got your foundation correct, what's the point about talking about the corridors and the roofs and the structures put on top of the roofs. We need a foundation that is strong, secure, and solid. And as I said earlier, this may be obvious to many of you, but it's not obvious to our political and legal leadership in this country. So it's the boarding basics that are extremely important when it comes to constitutional design for the third Republican Constitution. What is the rationale of a constitution? What are the first principles? And this is vitally important if we are really going to address what this model depicts as the fundamental defect of the 78 Constitution, the concentration of power in the executive president and its resultant authoritarianism, if you're going to address the concerns that people have talked about in the last couple of years about corruption, abuse of power, and a governance structure that is totally unresponsive to the people. So process and substance are equally important. And the challenge is enormous for us because our political leadership in the last 50 years has shown little or no interest in constitutional first principles. And so, in a sense, it's up to that vague and ambiguous animal civil society to try and ensure that some of these fundamental points that I discussed this evening are brought into the picture, highlighted, so that hopefully it will be third time lucky for Sri Lanka and we get a third Republican constitution that we can be proud of. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rohan. Um, I, part of my job is also to try and capture what speakers are saying in terms of live tweets, and I just gave up the ghost, actually, because it's impossible to capture the richness of that submission in 140 characters. So I just said, people, you should just listen to the podcast. So I gave up. I apologize, Rohan. I just, I, you just can't. Um, as a curator, one has to be very careful, and with apologies to uh, 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 Rohan, uh, uh, you don't want to press upon or impose upon a particular reading of what you have created. But just to submit to you, you know, suggest to you that uh, to, 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 to observe 
in, in relation of what Rohan said, which is the foundation, the foundations upon which uh, these buildings are created. Uh, you will see that it's uh, 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 suggestive of an alluvial soil. And I would ask you to be uh, 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 observant about where North points, where the, the, the foundation of the legislature is largely based on, and where, for example, the provincial council in the north and the east are placed, and how they are constructed. So it's not as if uh, Channa and Asang and I haven't uh, uh, incorporated uh, uh, a reading of the foundations upon which these buildings were created, insofar as the terra firma, or lack thereof, uh, in, in the models as well as the drawings. It might require you uh, to, to read a bit more, but as I said, one has to be careful about uh, 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 suggesting a particular reading. It's at the, end of, at the end of the day what you take out of it, but I would, I would recommend a, a closer reading. Uh, because uh, Rohan also mentioned Mr. Sumandiran, uh, uh, he is in Geneva, uh, and uh, if anything uh, was in doubt with that regard, 42 minutes ago he had, through his Blackberry, posted a photo on Facebook with him meeting the UN Human Rights uh, Commissioner. So he obviously won't be able to make it uh, in time for his, uh, for his keynote. He's extremely sorry and apologetic, uh, but in the course of tomorrow, I will. Uh, there is a person who has very kindly agreed to uh, step in his shoes and also give the, the, uh, the keynote on the F word uh, and the future of the F word in this country, uh, and it will be made known through uh, ground views and also through email. So uh, a slight change to the panel of speakers uh, that you may have uh, been already familiar with. Uh, so with those two uh, points, uh, may I now invite Ambika Satkunanadan to uh, give her uh, her submission. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sanjana, for uh, inviting me to be part of this, because today is the first time I'm actually looking at the exhibition, and I must say it's, uh, it's very impressive. Um, following on from Rohan, what um, I'm going to say to you now is that you see all these structures and what uh, Rohan, I think, mentioned also as a grotesque structure. What I'm going to say is that there is another shadow structure around it, within it, that you don't actually see, that has been created over the past 10 years, um, aided and abetted by the presidency. Uh, so I'm going to use the presidency as a framework to better understand the process of militarization and the construction of a shadow state that has taken place in Sri Lanka and set out the challenges facing Sri Lanka in terms of reforming or dismantling this structure and countering authoritarianism. So I'm not going to give you any answers, on, you know, contrary to what Sanjana said, just going to throw more questions and problems at you. Um, as Rohan mentioned, um, executive presidentialism is a dominant feature of Sri Lanka's constitution and more importantly as well as its uh, political culture. What we saw in post-war Sri Lanka was that the executive presidency with few fetters and restrictions on its authority was able to enable and sustain militarization through the securitization of certain groups and identities. What do I mean by securitization? That is merely presenting something as an existential threat. So it can be communities, it can be uh, certain groups that are presented as threats. So these threats were then used to justify 
the extraordinary measures that were taken by the state, as well as to justify the militarization. So if we look at the uh, legal structure, we will find that the Public Security Ordinance of 1947, which uh, enables the declaration of a state of emergency, gives substantive powers to the president, including the power to uh, bring into force emergency regulations and also to call out the armed forces to maintain law and order. Section 12 in particular, the one that enables the president to call out uh, the armed forces to maintain law and order, uh, unlike the declaration of a state of emergency, which requires parliamentary approval, this order to call out the armed forces actually doesn't need to uh, be put before parliament for approval. You merely need to inform the parliament of it. And failure to communicate to parliament also does not seem to affect the validity or operation of this order. Uh, the executive's extended use of emergency powers to legislate during difficult times and bypassing the elected representatives for extended periods for decades led to the state of exception remaining even after the state of emergency ceased to exist. Um, even after the state of emergency was allowed to lapse in 2011, the regime of the time used the legacy of the emergency regulations as well as the Prevention of Terrorism Act as a template to implement its dual-pronged project of securitization and militarization through various unofficial rules and practices, as well as a vocabulary of danger. Militarization as a strategy was therefore justified as the only means to counter threats posed by these certain areas, populations, and communities, which were deemed to continue to exist in post-war Sri Lanka. The prolonged state of emergency to which Sri Lanka was subject also enabled the creation of a number of unofficial rules and processes, which had no basis in law, but became the norm, if not at the macro level, certainly at the community micro level. For instance, there are rules and processes the military followed in the conflict-affected areas that most often were, no were known to the local populations, but were not known outside the north. Although they are not on the statute books, they attain the status of formal rules that were applied by those exercising power um, um, at the expense of proper laws, legislations, and circular. Um, for instance, even for many years following the end of the war, the populations in the north were subjected to what are called registrations, where various arms of the security sector would turn up at their homes, would request uh, information, would take their photographs, all the while not even informing them the reason for this um, initiative. And we also need to make a distinction between the process and form of militarization that existed pre-May 2009 and the one that came into being and became entrenched and normalized post-2009. Like in Colombia, where President Uribe introduced the concept of democratic security, which expected the participation of all citizens as agents of the state, whereby security became a collective effort of all citizens, in Sri Lanka too, particularly in the conflict-affected areas, citizens were expected to function as informants of the security sector, 
which naturally increased mistrust amongst the communities and lowered the possibility of rebuilding of social networks following the end of the war. So what does all this have to do with constitutional reform? Well, it has a lot to do with the presidency and hence with constitutional reform. In Sri Lanka, the role of the president in enabling and sustaining securitization and militarization was crucial. While depicting securitization and militarization as integral to safeguard the population, a paternalistic view was adopted, whereby the country was portrayed as a big family living a fraternal coexistence under the care of the father rather than the president or the politician. Uh, in this regard, the analytical construct of the Asokan persona formulated by the Sri Lankan scholar Michael Roberts enables a better understanding of the non-rational core of the nation and the cult of personality that supports the creation of such a paternalistic state. This is similar to other contexts and countries, for instance in Colombia, where the state became the punitive father who had to protect his children while denying them the possibility to determine the terms of that protection. So this is for your own good. Don't ask any questions kind of thing. In Sri Lanka, we witnessed the president transform into a godlike figure with the help of poetry and songs which hailed him as the reincarnation of a victorious historical king and lavish ceremonies that sought to glorify him. This god-slash-king-slash-father thence appealed to the loyalty of citizens to legitimize militarization, which was deemed imperative due to the existence of these aforementioned securitized communities or groups, these dangerous people. The president who constructed himself as such a figure also dispensed favors by helping certain individuals and groups seek redress from the repressive effects of militarization in a show of benevolence and power that led to a, a loss of confidence in the institutions of the constitutional state and the associated representative uh, agencies of political society. Militarization has therefore created the belief that an extensive and deep-seated surveillance mechanism exists in the conflict-affected areas, which would then take punitive measures against people who are perceived to contravene these you know, unofficial norms and rules. So this has enabled the security sector to control the behavior of the population, even in the absence of a visible, physical, uniformed military presence. Hence, the mobilization of fear became fundamental to the state's security provision. In this context, citizens, particularly those belonging to minority communities, became less inclined to claim their rights politically and more prone to what we can call voluntary obedience in return for protection. Following the victory of Maitripala Sirisena at the presidential election in January this year, the fear factor has somewhat lifted in the conflict-affected areas. This paradoxically uh, underscores the centrality of the presidential institution, in that a mere change in the occupant of the office can lead to such a noticeable change in perceptions about securitization and militarization. 
Yet, the highly problematic environment created during the past decade that I had described earlier, which is ultimately traceable to the executive presidency, brought into being what we can call a shadow state, in which unofficial structures and processes began to be adopted as official and even supersede official legal structures. Sanjana, am I running over time? <laughs> I thought I, okay. <laughs> Saw you nod, okay. Um, so unlike in Turkey, which is often referred to as a deep state, where the military enjoys a high level of autonomy and functions as a separate entity, in Sri Lanka, we found that the executive and the military were not separate, which during the previous regime made the combination a very potent and dangerous force. As other country contexts have illustrated, the military's political economy is indicated through its aversion to or even defiance of civilian control, with the military functioning as though it is above the constitutional authority of the government. It then becomes very protective of its gains and it, as it accumulates power and will more vigorously resist the shifting of control to democratic authority when their interests are very valuable and entrenched. Um, in Sri Lanka, the security sector was also used as a means of dispensing patronage and bolstering the position of certain political parties, particularly in the conflict-affected areas. For instance, institutions within this military complex, like the Civil Security Department, which runs large agricultural farms, particularly in the north, uh, they have become sometimes the only form of steady employment for the populations in the conflict-affected areas. In a state where the military uh, gains increased centrality in society, the political elite of the state are said to make certain changes to the fundamental practices of the state, which in turn turn out to be dictatorial than democratic, and institutional pra practices long connected with modern democracy disappear. In Sri Lanka, there existed autocratic cliques or client groups, which gathered political support, exerted direct political influence through hierarchical ties, and were loyal to a person, not an institution, resulting in the erosion of trust in institutions and the subordination of formal procedures to a clientelist logic. Um, in countries such as Turkey, these groups constituted of leaders of the security community and organized crime. But in the case of Sri Lanka, these groups also consisted of friends, relatives, state officials, and even elected representatives. The administrative structure was centralized, and at every level, authority was integrated in a few hands. These groups exerted political influence, were loyal only to the executive, and the extended family or associates, and functioned as gatekeepers, not only to access to services and entitlements, but also redress for grievances that should have been legally provided by state institutions. These factors point to Sri Lanka being a state that is inadequately constrained by the constitutional state from above, and lacks effective accountability to the institutions of mass representation from below, parliament, political parties, civil society. In such a context, there emerges a condition where two systems come into existence, the normative state, 
which is endowed with elaborate powers for safeguarding the legal order as expressed in statutes, and the prerogative or administrative state, which exercises unlimited arbitrariness and violence unchecked by any legal guarantees. There is therefore the danger that despite the normative value and safeguards of certain legal mechanisms in terms of checks and balances, the entire legal system can become or de facto function as an instrument at the disposal of the political authorities, in this case, the executive. And one of the most important and illuminating examples of the informal structure taking precedence over the formal and functioning openly is the now defunct presidential task force on reconstruction in the North. The executive therefore created an environment conducive for securitization and militarization, mainly through the use of emergency powers, which enabled the emergence of unofficial rules and processes that remained even following the lapse of the state of emergency. The dual processes of securitization and militarization have had an adverse impact on particularly the conflict-affected communities, as they deliberately undermined and controlled political activism and activity in these areas. In this context, a shadow state that functioned in parallel to the official normative state came into being, thereby further eroding democratic principles and practices and centralizing power within the executive. Dismantling this structure and these practices and values is integral to implement reforms that have been undertaken in the past few months or years or even proposed in the coming months. Um, the impact of the failure to dismantle the shadow state is illustrated by events currently unfolding in Tunisia, which has seen the activities of its truth commission being hampered by the interest groups of the deep, deep state that continue to exist and are battling in the shadows to maintain the status quo. Recently, Tunisia saw the formulation of laws that provide amnesty to those engaged in economic crimes if they return a portion of those ill-gotten gains. The decisions, of course, to grant this amnesty will be made in closed secret hearings. The chief investigator of the Tunisian Truth Commission says, democracy is not only elections, it is about the legality of all acts, and we don't have that. The main business of this draft law is to protect the machinery of the deep state. This illustrates the considerable challenges that will be encountered when attempts are made to dismantle deeply entrenched, insidious, and hidden structures and processes. Now, just a couple of remarks on the issue of process of constitutional reform, as that is one of the core themes of this exhibition. One of the questions that Sanjana asks is how public trust could be gained and maintained. My response is that while this shadow structure exists and operates, it will be extremely difficult for the state to earn the trust of the public, as the public is not likely to trust institutions and processes. Secondly, how do we encourage public interest in constitutional reforms? Because these issues might be considered peripheral to existential issues. Based on my work in the past six years in the conflict-affected areas, I would say there is considerable interest in these issues in those areas, 
despite the fact that those populations also stress the importance of finding ways of dealing with the existential issues, the day-to-day -day issues. One of the main challenges in fostering a vibrant and informed public debate, however, is the lack of information, or sometimes the deliberate spread of misinformation. Yet, there are many who do see the connection between these supposedly complex legal issues that are perhaps viewed as esoteric and peripheral and uh, what are called the existential issues. If at all, I'd say one would find this, those living in difficult circumstances possess a better understanding of this connection than maybe even you and I. This is because in order to access state services and obtain state assistance, they witness and experience the flaws of the current legal structures and processes every day due to their constant interactions with multiple state structures and officials. Hence, they understand the need for a provincial or local official to possess certain powers to make what would be considered simple decisions rather than those issues being referred back to the center in Colombo. Finally, a uh, um, point on civil society. It has been argued that deep politics of society is as important as high politics of state since democratization involves starting from the deep politics of society and asking what they imply for the high politics of the state. Hence, civil society acts as a point of conversions of the politics of state and society. Yet, civil society is not a neutral space, but one that also tends to reproduce existing societal divisions and inequalities. Deep politics of civil society in Sri Lanka does illustrate the marginalization of certain groups, which we then see represented or reproduced in the high politics of the state, which, if we are inclined to learn lessons from the past, the 2002 peace process clearly illustrated. The late Kethi Shloganathan, for instance, pointed out during the 2002 peace process that what he called at that point the advocacy constituency was short-sighted in its conception of inclusiveness. Therefore, moving forward, we have to ensure that civil society challenges the exclusionary practices encountered in upcoming reform processes rather than perpetuating it or reproducing it. Thank you. You have two mics. Thank you very much, Ambika. And now the floor is open for questions and answers. Uh, please raise your hand, and uh, I also encourage you to wait until a mic is uh, in your hand before you speak, because as you know, this is being recorded. Uh, professor, uh, you said that um, uh, there not professor? <laughs> Oh, sorry. <laughs> Just my, uh, my apologies and also my uh, surprise. I thought you should be. Uh, the, uh, you said that uh, this was obvious to us. You were preaching to the converted almost. Uh, and you said it was not obvious to the people who actually make the decisions. Why do you think that is? Is it willful ignorance? And if not, how do you bridge the gap? 
Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, wait, yeah. Um, I'm not sure, but I do think that our political leaders seem obsessed with what I have called executive convenience. So you will find that both the 72 and 78 constitutions were basically drafted and adopted by governments who had two-thirds majorities and therefore were able to introduce the 72 and 78 constitutions without reaching out to the opposition, without requiring opposition support. So since they were designing a constitution for their period of governance, they basically designed a constitution that put a premium on their convenience rather than on the interests of the people. And so having constitutional restraints on power was obviously inconvenient. And so therefore they preferred to have some of these violations of constitutional first principles that I, as I put it, because it suited them. Now they have got so used to it, they think it's almost the norm. And so the challenge is that when you're engaging with the political leaders now, both in government and opposition, they would be, would be challenging some of the things that they have got so accustomed to, they think it's the norm. And so it's going to be a real challenge. And they'll say, ah, yes, but as soon as you have judicial review of legislation, that will cause problems, laws might be struck down. And it's all from a kind of practical convenience perspective, uh, rather than the supremacy of the Constitution perspective. So it's an enormous challenge. And so even though both political groupings have said, we need a new constitution, my fear is that they don't, they're not really serious about introducing a new constitution with, which, which sort of changes this executive convenience mindset that has existed in this country since 1972. This altruistic form of uh, or approach to constitution changing that you're proposing, do you Honestly, you, I mean, you say enormous challenge and you're being euphemistic, but do you actually think that it's ever achievable within the next 10, 15 years? Well, one, well, year, I mean, one year is what we are told. <laughs> Leave aside 10, 15 years. Well, 2015 has been a, a surprising year of change. I mean, uh, people wouldn't have predicted some of the change that uh, has taken place in this country. So all I'm saying is that we'll have to, we'll have to try and we'll have to push, we'll have to get our... And what I'm concerned about is that civil society also needs to, to really do a little bit of research and reflection and ask themselves the question, okay, if you're going to have a new constitution, what is it that we really require? It's not just the 20th Amendment, it's not just the 19th Amendment, it's not just adjusting the power dynamics between the president and prime minister or changing the electoral system to do with preferential voting. What I've been trying to suggest is there are some fundamentals that need to be addressed. And the challenge is that I think we all need to get together, the business community, the trade union movement, you know, people who normally don't unite to achieve certain objectives. I would have thought that on a constitution, it might be something that we can all come together on and try to lobby for some of these core principles that I tried to describe in my presentation. That's Rohan's I have a dream speech right there. It's very good. Any other uh, questions? Um, Rohan, in order to achieve what you, what you just talked about, how much education do you think is going to be required for people to come together? 
Is that in and of itself a challenge? I think that's key, and a certain amount of uh, civic education is very important. Um, the question, my concern is, the government seems to be extremely concerned about doing this quickly, and I think there are understandable political reasons why they want to do it quickly. <clears throat> Yeah, they, they feel that during the so-called honeymoon period or, you know, before divisions start appearing between the, the two main parties in the so-called national government, this needs to be done. But I think we've got to be very realistic, right? So the Prime Minister initially spoke about six months. The Minister of Justice is talking about two years. Huh? Sanjana told me that Mangala Samarira is talking about one and a half years. So whatever it is, and I think it's probably going to be one year to one and a half years, the education process has got to start. Now, who does this? I don't think it should be the government. Yeah, we saw this from 95 to 2000. You had civil society, in a sense, being co-opted by the government. And uh, as a result, uh, the effectiveness of their uh, effect, uh, education campaign was undermined somewhat. I think we've, we've got to do both. So how is this going to be done? And how are people going to come together? And how do we reach out to the different constituencies? And let me tell you, Jagdish, it's going to be a challenge because I'm familiar with the legal community. And let me tell you that lots of what some of us would consider first principles are not appreciated by the legal community itself. So, I mean, uh, so, so then what about professionals? What about other people? Uh, the other thing is, of course, that uh, we need to look back also and reflect a little bit. How come the 18th Amendment was passed? There was little or no public outcry. It could have been the fear factor uh, because of the shadow state. It could have been some of those factors too. But I think one of the challenges, and I think that was uh, sort of implied in your question, is how do we make people who are concerned about ordinary issues, as Ambika <laughs> referred to in her presentation, see the connection between those ordinary day-to-day issues and some of these larger constitutional questions. And that's where I think many of us have failed, to show that linkage and show that relationship. I don't know, Ambika, whether you'd like to, to, to respond to any of this. have a mic. Um, I think I agree with Rohan in that uh, there is a lot of education that is required, because as I said, um, my field work is mostly in the conflict-affected areas, and I find that there is a lot of interest, and they ask questions, and they want to debate, but at the same time, there's also a lot of misinformation that you see. And also, many of these publications are only in English, so they're not in the local languages, and they also people will not read 40, 50, 60-page reports, uh, you know, maximum perhaps two pages. So I think it's an uphill task, but one that is very important. There are two. You go, you go first. Uh, thank you. Uh, Rohan, maybe a simple, if not simplistic question. What, in what language is, the, is the, the Constitution of Sri Lanka written? I mean, what has sort of force of, uh, I mean, legal force, uh, as it were? I ask because uh, so you referred extensively in your, in your talk talk to South Africa, which is 11 official languages, and I think it's written in English. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, India's constitution is also in English. I might be wrong on that. So I just like your, 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 your answer to that point. A quick a second point now. Uh, the official name of, of, of the country, the republic, is the Democratic Socialist Republic of Sri Lanka. It's a bit of an embarrassment. Is there anything, <laughs> anything on the cards to call ourselves 
a simple republic of Sri Lanka? Well, the constitution is in all three languages and the constitution requires that all legal documents are available to the public in the three languages that are spoken in this country. But your question is interesting because invariably what happens in this country, and I'm, I suspect that it would happen with the constitution itself, is that the initial work and the initial draft will probably be in English and then it's translated, right? Notwithstanding that, the Constitution will probably have a clause which says that if there is any inconsistency between the Sinhala version of the Constitution and the Tamil version of the Constitution, the Sinhala shall prevail. And there's no reference to English. So, so we have a slightly, you know, the, 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 the reality is a little different from what really happens. But I suspect that most of the work that will originally be done, the first drafts will be done in English and then translated. And, then there, and as you know, there could be enormous challenges with respect to the translation process. Uh, on your second point, I mean, I fully agree. I mean, Sri Lanka was neither democratic nor socialist during the operation of the 78 constitution. It's not good practice to put labels, democratic, socialist, federal, unitary. I mean, there should really not be labels in the constitution. Whether a constitution is democratic, socialist, unitary, or federal is something that sort of academics have nothing better to do should debate and discuss. You don't put that kind of detail in the constitution. And I think that now there is an agreement that it is embarrassing, not, not on the unitary federal one, that's going to be very difficult, but I suspect that it will just be called the Republic of Sri Lanka. Sara, one second, there was a question in front, I can come. Oh, is it connected to this or what? Shall I? Oh, okay, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, no, I just wanted to say, Rohan, I don't know whether you will agree with this wholeheartedly, but it's certainly an observation that occurred to me that in all the decades of talking about constitutional reform, I think this is the first time that you got original documents for reform in Sinhala. I was, I was saying I was not so sure whether Rohan said it's in English. The 19th Amendment and sure. the 20th Amendment. And I think that is socially and politically significant mm. in terms of the actors involved now in the constitution-making process. For the very first time, we had an entire debate that went on in respect of it in Sinhala. And I think the 20th Amendment in that respect was basically drafted in Sinhala and discussed also almost entirely in Sinhala. Um. My, my understanding was that you're right, that a lot of the preparatory work was done in Singhala, particularly on the 20th Amendment, but that it went to a team of senior legal draftsmen, uh, draftspersons, who actually prepared the official version in English. I could be wrong, but uh, we need to check. It's an, but your point is well taken on the 20th Amendment, that the leading the people who were really responsible for its policy, as it were, did their preliminary drafts in Singhala. And if I just may add, I th the clash of cultures may well have led to us not having a 20th Amendment. Um, thank you, Rohan, for a very enlightening thing about uh, some of the fundamental foundational flaws uh, in our constitution. Uh, much appreciated. Um, I have a suggestion to Sanjana and all the other members of the civil society. Um, I'm a simple engineer, I'm not a constitutional scholar, 
um, and engineers like to see problems fixed. Um, can you please start a what the fuck uh, face, uh, Facebook page uh, which highlights these issues uh, about the Constitution? It's unbelievable. I mean, uh, why, why don't we do this and put it out there as opposed to discussing it in this forum with huh? what, 60 people in here and we all walk out of here, nobody knows about this. It's outrageous. So that has existed for so long um, and I didn't know these things. So thank you for uh, 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 illuminating this point and can we turn this outrage into something constructive, please. Thank you. I will give consideration to that. <laughs> But I think uh, the point, I think, is open for contestation, and you have heard it because you've come here on evenings prior to this. Uh, one of the submissions that subliminally or perhaps even quite overtly this exhibition makes is that all of us are architects of our future. And you pointed out names and said that we were civil society. I would argue that all of us in this room are civil society. Uh, and the conflation is often erroneously made between NGOs and civil society organizations and a broader body politic that is civil society. Uh, and it's not, I take your point on board, but it's not to pass the buck. Uh, as Sarah submitted yesterday, and I think Rohan also submitted today, uh, we need to get our act together and start engaging as much as the government needs to get its act together and start communicating. It's a reciprocity. Uh, and we need to start thinking of civil society as civil society actors and as architects and not just as NGOs who will do the job for us. Yeah. But Sanjana, can I just say something? I, knew, I know you wanted the issue of the use of social media. No, no, I, I, it was uh, a broader framework. Exactly, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable and com competent enough to deal with that. So I think we can take Tilak's, Tilak's suggestion in that light, that given the time constraints involved, given the desire of the government to rush this through, how do we try to make as much public engagement and participation as possible? And I think you uh, argued very persuasively recently where I heard you on how social media can be used. And perhaps this is something that needs to be discussed yeah. uh, as, as a separate issue among civil society as to how we can do it this time around to engage as many people as possible. And you make the point that it's a different type of constituency that uses those tools. So I think it's an important point. And I mean, I'm not want to take away from the, from the question, but uh, you, know, you might find me an, uh, a rather surprising advocate for substance. Uh, what you suggest is often what I would be associated with, but the point of social media and any kind of media engagement, Ron, as you might, uh, as you have alluded to in your submission as well, you need substantive material in order to create the social media discussions. They, they're not creating evacuity. It's not a vacuum that uh, civil society can take on board without guidance and substance coming from, at the end of the day, the anchor to which this is going to be driven by. So we can create these kind of fora across all languages and across multimedia and you know I can think of in five minutes imaginative ways that even the government won't think of in a couple of years but the point is substantively it needs to be the meat of it needs to come from uh, the people you know uh, who are who are responsible for taking this process forward uh, yeah that was sorry yeah. uh, just uh, uh, this question is from Mr. Rohan Singh. Eh? No, I totally agree that we, the civil society should also take a hand in in drafting this constitution, not leaving it merely to the politicians. I am also aware that in countries like South Africa, there was a lot of participatory, and even foreign experts participated in, in drafting their constitution when the constitution was done. Is there any scope for 
getting, say, an organization like the Commonwealth Secretariat to, to participate in drafting the Constitution, considering the scenario here with all these div divisive uh, things, is, is that a sort of thing that is any, any way uh, possible or good thing in your view? Um, I, I'm not sure that the Commonwealth Secretariat has a, will have a very good uh, reputation given uh, the conduct of the Secretary General uh, just prior to the last Commonwealth Summit. But I think your point is an important one that we can learn from other experiences about uh, how to involve the public. I mean, South Africa, uh, as you rightly said, Mr. Pierce had a very creative and imaginative way of involving the people. They didn't have the same high liter literacy levels that we have in Sri Lanka. So I think I would agree with you if your point is that we need to look at other experiences to, to learn lessons about how we can effectively engage the public. No, particularly considering the past that we have failed on two occasions and consider the divisive nature of our society, it might be a good thing to have some independent input from outside. I don't know this word. whether that is any, any, in, in any way possible. Ambika, you have Actually, it's a question um, because about learning um, from other experiences and if you look at even the past 15, 20 years, we've actually done a lot of that. You know, we've invited experts over, we've even taken them out of Colombo, there have been workshops and conferences, etc., etc., publications. And so I'm just wondering even now for me, and I've been working for only maybe the past you know, 15 years, I feel like I keep hearing this again and again. And we had the 2000, you know, 90s, the process, then 2002 peace process, now we're back here again. So my question is, the suggestion is great, but obviously we have been doing something wrong in implementing it. So if we're going to do it this time, then what should we do differently? It's because it's something that has been bothering me, so that's why I'm just putting it out there. Yeah, no, I think we have to do something. We, have, we probably have to look at what went on 95 to 2000, uh, learn lessons from that, what succeeded, what failed. We've got to look at, say, examples like South Africa, Nepal, other uh, Kenya, where people were really involved, imaginative, creative. Uh, mechanisms were used by the Constitutional Commission to engage with the people, and then obviously try to adapt it uh, for, for Sri Lanka. Can I ask the last question, uh, if there are no more questions? And this is one, uh, if you read the description of today's, of today's the contours of today's uh, 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 talk by the two uh, individuals, one of the questions I want, and I actually thought of Rohan, you, when I framed it, uh, in light of also a, a presentation that you made recently at the National Christian Evangelical Association of Sri Lanka, where you uh, made a very uh, compelling case for semantics and how expressing something in one way breeds resistance. And the same idea articulated another way uh, foments and cultivates, if not outright support, then lesser resistance. And I was wondering, and I knew that you would be very strong on first principles, and, uh, and true to form you were. I was wondering where for you, and I suppose the majority in this room, the, the, the role of compromise. That if they are not going to be met, and I think that we are not naive enough to believe that they will be, to the fullest expression and uh, 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 extent that we would like it to be, where for you is that line? 
uh, in those first principles that you articulated? Where do, you, where do all of us draw the line recognizing, cognizant of the in inevitability of compromise? You know? Where do we say, at perhaps risk of the entire process collapsing, that these are the things that we will not compromise on, uh, and if we were to do that, then it actually is no point even moving forward with the process at great risk to being publicly perceived as perhaps for the best of intent, spoilers at that juncture. Yeah, well, on the first principles, I must say, I see very little room for compromise. Yes. Um, the people ultimately drafting the constitution, the constitution being supreme, uh, and the constitution serving as a counter-majoritarian document. I find it very difficult to see any room for compromise. When it comes to semantics, there may be some possibilities. I mean, the example that you referred to is where I was speaking to some journalists about how the word convert is viewed negatively in Nepal. Yeah? No person should, there's a resistance to allowing people to convert. But if you were to ask people, but do you think someone should be allowed to change his or her religion, the response was, of course. So, Basically, it meant the same thing. So you avoid words like convert, put in words like change. Now, in Sri Lanka, the, the big question is going to be unitary. Mm. Yeah? Uh, the word unitary is just so emotive for various reasons. And uh, there will be some people who will say, well, let's keep the label unitary but let's introduce provisions into the constitution that devolve power to the provinces, which is real, which cannot be taken back by the center, where the autonomy of the provinces is significant, which from a formal sense crosses the line from unitary to federal. Yeah? And so part of me finds that a little uncomfortable because you, you have a word the constitution is unitary, but then in substance, in reality, the constitution is not unitary. Yeah? But to some people, that will be an acceptable compromise. Yeah? Of course, whether the moderate Tamil parties would find that an acceptable compromise is another thing. To me, the obvious compromise, which I concede might be difficult to sell, is to not have any label. Yeah? Talk about Sri Lanka being united, have provisions to protect the territorial integrity of the country, and allow devolution so that the people in the north and the east can run their own affairs on important issues without posing any threat to the territorial integrity of the country. And that, to me, would mean going far beyond the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. So difficult, difficult questions, Sanjana. Yeah? Uh, so, I think you can't compromise on the principles. You may be able to compromise on language, yeah. but even then you have to take into account the fact that some of these concepts and some of these words mean a lot to various people and they want to either see them preserved or see them abolished. And ultimately, though your point is well taken, the new constitution is going to require compromise. And one hopes that because no single party has a two-thirds majority, this time round we might have a constitution that is more a compromise consensus document than the 72 and 78 constitutions. Sunil, you had a question? Or? Okay. Thank you very much then for coming. Uh, I encourage you again, for those who came late, to take your time going around the, the, uh, the art, well, the informed art, the political art, I don't know what you could call this actually, uh, the creations around you.
Uh, every, as I said, every line has resonance with the original text of Asanga, uh, and it will help you vastly if you actually you read the description of Asanga and Channa before you go on to the drawings, because that, in a sense, is the frame within which the drawings and the 3D renders and the models can be appreciated. Thank you very much. I hope to see you again during the course of the week. We have, as I said, uh, at the beginning, a public talk or a panel discussion every day at 5.30. Uh, and the, the exhibition opens for the public at 9 o'clock. It's free, uh, and it goes on to the 22nd. Thank you very much for coming. Good night.